Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam Cronin, and today we're discussing the future of COVID-19, the coronavirus. That means we'll delve into how the coronavirus compares to previous pandemics, how this global health crisis is likely to unfold, how it will affect individuals and the economy, and what steps should be taken to better prepare ourselves for pandemics in the future. And in this episode in particular, I want to take a realistic approach. That means I don't want to be overly optimistic and I don't want to be overly pessimistic because there's enough of that going on in the media already. So I think we should begin by grounding ourselves with the most important metrics as we know them today. And whenever you're measuring any sort of infectious disease, there's really two key metrics that you need to consider. And those are the spread rate, often annotated as R0, you know, R0, and the death rate. So it's still very early and these numbers may change, but right now it looks like on average, one sick person with COVID-19 will infect two to three other people. This is slightly greater than the spread rate of the seasonal flu. And when you play these numbers out in a computer model, or even if you just think about it, you can see that the number of infected people will continue to grow exponentially until the spread rate drops below one, where one sick person infects one or fewer other people on average. So as of right now, the coronavirus is growing exponentially. The other important metric to consider is the death rate. This metric is also likely to change as we gather more data from Singapore, South Korea, Japan, and other countries that tend to have really reliable medical data, so it's very early. But right now, it looks like the death rate for coronavirus is between 1% and 3%. So if there's 100 people, 1% to 3 of those people will die of the infected. And that death rate is about 20% greater than the death rate of the seasonal flu. So while it's true, as some pundits have said, that you're way more likely to die from the seasonal flu, that's mostly because the seasonal flu is a lot more widespread. If you get infected with the coronavirus, you're about 20 to 25 times more likely to die than if you get the seasonal flu. And older people, sickly people, people with comorbidities are more at risk than young, healthy people. And smokers and those with lung-related issues are the most at risk because a lot of the symptoms of the coronavirus are pneumonia-like symptoms, you know, dry cough and things related to the lungs, uh, difficulty breathing. And I believe also they said that the period of which someone is sick is about two weeks two to three weeks for mild cases and three to six weeks for severe cases. And two thirds of severe cases require people going on a ventilator. That's where someone, that's where you actually have a machine that's basically doing the breathing for you, expanding and contracting your lungs. And part of the concern is that we may not have enough ventilators, especially in certain countries, to deal with this crisis if it truly reaches a global scale, you know, even beyond the global scale that it's at today. And there are still a lot of unknown genetic and environmental factors. You know, are some populations more at risk than others? Will this go away in the warmer season because the virus won't be able to live on surfaces for as long as it does when it's in colder season? There are a lot of unknowns, but what we can say now for sure is that unless actions are taken, this virus will continue to spread around the globe. 
And one more point I just want to mention about the death rate is that it sounds really bad when you say that one to three percent of infected people will die. But it's sort of a psychological phenomenon that if you say it in the flip side, which is that 97 to 99 percent of people who get coronavirus will be fine afterwards, then it sounds a lot less scary. So it's important to put this in perspective. And I know for myself, you know, being a young, healthy person, I'm not particularly concerned about getting the coronavirus myself and it, you know, hurting me and potentially killing me. But I am really concerned about some people in my family uh, or friend group who are in a less healthy state. And, you know, the worst thing would be if you get infected and then you infect a loved one who's not as healthy and then they have serious issues. So that's a big concern of mine. And I know it's a concern of a lot of people. I want to talk next about the economic impacts of COVID-19, because this seems to be a good indicator of how big of an impact it's having overall. It's also a big concern of in the political world, especially because we're going into a uh, race for the presidency and the economic conditions are going to greatly determine how well any Democratic candidate would do against Trump. So the Trump administration is really making a big effort to have the economy not go into a recession in the coming months. But despite those efforts, in one week, the Dow dropped by 12%, which is the worst single week since the 2008 financial crisis. And I just want to also caveat this by saying that even though 2% sounds terrible, and it is terrible, when you look at the long-term stock market, it is really just a blip because we've had so much growth over the last several decades. So uh, I wouldn't panic yet, but it is a good indicator that we may be about to enter into recession. Another reason we may be able to be about to enter into a recession is that supply chains with China have been seriously disrupted as factories have closed, people have been put under quarantine, not been able to leave their houses, and the economy has essentially grinded to a halt. So as a result, there have been shortages of iPhones, you know, the new iPhones coming out, they're going to have delays there. Uh, Factories are looking like they'll continue to be closed for at least the next four to six weeks, which is a lot of time within development cycles. And also automobiles, clothing, and especially pharmaceuticals. A lot of our pharmaceuticals are developed in China. So we could have a shortage of medications for other issues that are unrelated to the coronavirus. But because supply chains have been disrupted, people won't be able to get the life-saving medicine that they need potentially, which is, of course, something we should worry about. And another point just on the economic impact of COVID-19 is that the market responds to panic. Oftentimes the market is less a barometer of how well the actual economy is doing, and it's more of a metric of how people think the economy is doing. So when people hunker down, when they stop investing in their business and hiring people and doing deals, traveling, going to trade shows, when they stop spending, that's what brings on a recession. Everything sort of slows down and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's still a bit too soon to say that that's going to happen here, but it is something that we should keep an eye on as it seems more likely than it has been in the past. And I would recommend listening to The Future of Wealth, The Future of Recessions, and The Future of Finance, 
all of those episodes are really good uh, summaries of how you should think about diversifying your own investments so that you're prepared for the worst case, which, which is a recession or a depression. Let's talk a little bit about the societal impacts of COVID-19. So there have been some interesting changes in how society has been functioning since this outbreak. One is the post-handshake culture. So you've seen some videos probably on social media where rather than handshaking, people will tap their feet to each other or they'll tap their elbows. And that's kind of a good practice. And as someone who doesn't really like shaking people's hands anyways, I sort of more would prefer like a fist bump or bowing. I think this is a good trend just in general. And uh, it's also it feels more respectful. Like when you're in yoga class and you do namaste, it's like a very respectful gesture. Whereas a handshake, especially the American variety, can often feel almost aggressive. Like who's got the, the uh, harder grip and, and that sort of thing. So I'm a fan of the post handshake culture. The remote work culture is also exploding because people realize that you are way less likely to get a, an infectious disease if you're working from home and on video chat than you are if you're in the office using the same door handles and you know water cooler as everyone else. And as a result of this trend, the stock price of Zoom, which is a, a virtual conferencing company, they, that, their stock price has been going through the roof. Uh, some other social implications, so a bad social impact has been there have been some racist sentiments towards Asians because this did start in Wuhan province in China, and that's definitely not helping. You know, a lot of the media has shown, even in Manhattan, they'll show pictures of an Asian person wearing a mask, which sort of helps perpetuate this stereotype of Asian people are the most uh, uh, that you should be concerned about with encountering, but it's really counterproductive and we should just focus on how to prevent the virus for all people in all places. I'm personally worried myself when I think about what I'm most exposed to at the gym is probably the place where I feel like I'm most at risk because there are the just most unknown people touching various types of equipment I'm using. So I noticed my own behavior has changed where I'm now wiping off every machine I used before and after I use it. Whereas I never used to do that because I had more of the mindset of, you know, building up my immune system. And so I would urge other people, you know, during this time period to do the same thing. And when I go on flights, like I was just on a, an airplane recently, I'll actually bring like wet wipes and wipe down, you know, each of my armrests, the little air nozzle at the top, the lights, even the touchscreen where you can watch movies. And that can be a real lifesaver if you just bring some wet wipes with you and hand sanitizer. Now I want to spend some time talking about how COVID-19 compares to previous pandemics, because it's important to put this in context. And when we think about pandemics throughout history, we can't really separate the death rate or the spread rate without knowing the medical knowledge and technology of the times. Because every year we're gaining more and more medical knowledge and we're getting better and better at developing treatments and vaccines. So we need to 
take a breath and think about what was it like back in each of these previous pandemics and how might it have been different if we had the medical knowledge and technology that we have today. So the first pandemic I think that's worth mentioning is the Black Death. You know, this was a plague that was spread through fleas on rats all throughout Europe, and it wiped out a third of the population in Europe, which is absolutely massive. And this is before we even knew what germs were. This was before we had antibiotics. You know, if you've seen some of the images, people literally had these uh, almost demon-like beaked masks that the doctors would wear, that they would stuff spices in the mask so that they wouldn't have the, the stench of the dead people. And they thought that would scare away the demons and therefore make them less likely to get infected. So that just shows how early our knowledge of medicine was. But one thing that's important is that the first quarantine occurred during the Black Death. And this was something that previously no one had thought to quarantine sick people from everyone else as a way of stopping diseases. But there were some small towns in Europe that were able to go completely unscathed. And there was one town that even barricaded itself way up in the mountain and they had guards at every entrance and they would not let anyone come in who was not already part of the town. They made sure that they didn't get any sort of uh, uh, supplies that were from any infected areas. And they really just lived in a self-sufficient way within their own community throughout the whole duration of the Black Death. And they were able to go uh, without any infections. So that was really the instance where quarantine was first implemented, and it did work to some degree. Another important pandemic to consider is smallpox. And this hit the Native American population especially hard when uh, you know English and other explorers went to America. And up to 90% of Native Americans are expected to have been, or estimated to have been killed by smallpox. smallpox. Even George Washington is said to have lost more of his troops to smallpox than troops that were actually killed in battle. So this was a major problem during that time. And the interesting thing about how human behavior changed is that the first vaccination was actually implemented with smallpox, where some of the soldiers were given a little bit of the virus so that they could build up a defense and therefore be less likely to succumb to the virus and ultimately die. So we had the first quarantine with the Black Death and the first vaccination with smallpox. And our understanding of antibiotics got even better during the syphilis pandemic, which ravaged Europe. Uh, and it was a deadly STD. It's, it's hard to estimate how many people died because there weren't great medical records being kept at that time. And there are still a lot of people that, that suffer from, from this disease. But this was an instance where we were able to develop an antibiotic. And from dealing with syphilis, we were able to improve our understanding of antibiotics. Cholera is another pandemic that's worth noting. And this was spread through contaminated drinking water in the 19th century. It became uh, much more widespread than a lot of previous pandemics because a lot of globalization had occurred by that time. And there are still around 100,000 people who die from cholera each year. What's important about this disease is that it's one of the first instances where 
infectious disease doctors were able to trace back to the source of the outbreak back in the 18th uh, or the 19th century. And they found that it was from a dirty diaper of an infected, you know, baby that was near their water source. And so this greatly improved our understanding where we actually did some sort of forensics to figure out how did this disease begin? How can we stop it? And how can we prevent this sort of thing from happening in the future? And as a result, they had better policies around water cleanliness and sewage and that sort of thing after the cholera outbreak. Another major pandemic, and this is probably the one you've heard the most about as being compared to coronavirus, is the Spanish flu, which is a version of the influenza, just the flu, right? This was known as the big one because the 1918 Spanish flu killed at least 50 million people worldwide. So this was on a scale that no previous epidemic had reached. You know, the Black Death killed a greater percentage of the population, but the Spanish flu killed way more people because there were way more people living on the globe at that time. And globalization had allowed the flu to really spread from one part of the world to another. And ever since the Spanish flu arose, people have been wondering, when will the next big one occur? What if another a pandemic like the Spanish flu arises, given that we have so much more globalization today, even than back then, what would that be like? And Bill Gates recently published a, an essay on his Bill Gates Notes website, where he says that it's looking more and more like the coronavirus will be the, quote, pandemic of the century. Especially if we start getting better at dealing with pandemics in the future, this may be one of the worst pandemics that we encounter, you know, in a hundred years. And I think it's also worth comparing coronavirus to more modern diseases because these have had a lot of media exposure. So it's worth just mentioning how do they compare to the coronavirus? And specifically, I'm talking about SARS, MERS, and Ebola. So SARS and MERS have not spread as quickly as the coronavirus is spreading. And part of the reason for that is because with SARS and MERS, the people who are contagious are really dealing with a lot of symptoms themselves. They look terrible, they feel terrible, and they're probably not going around and mingling in public because they're so sick. Whereas with the coronavirus, people are often asymptomatic, meaning they have no symptoms whatsoever, or they just have very mild symptoms like, oh, I just have a sniffle, I have a little bit of a cough, whatever it is. And during that time, they are contagious. So that has resulted in the coronavirus spreading much more rapidly than SARS or MERS. And to put some numbers to it, for the first 1,000 people to be infected, it took two and a half years for MERS to reach that first thousand people, whereas for SARS, it took 130 days. And for coronavirus, it only took 48 days. So in a short amount of time, the coronavirus has spread to far more people than SARS or MERS. It's worth noting that SARS and MERS do have a higher fatality rate. So if you do end up getting, getting the coronavirus, you're less likely to die than if you got SARS or MERS. So for every 100 people infected, MERS will kill 34 people, SARS will kill 10 people, and the coronavirus will only kill about two people. 
And let's talk a bit about Ebola. And while it's true that just like SARS and MERS, Ebola is also a much more lethal disease than COVID-19. And just like SARS and MERS, Ebola is also far less contagious because it can only be transmitted through bodily fluids. But part of the reason that Ebola was such a major issue from 2014 to 2016 is that it arose in Western African countries that did not have good medical infrastructure and responses to infectious disease outbreaks. So if you recall, during this part of the Obama administration, there needed to be a massive global response of wealthy countries coming in to help implement some good practices in these Western African countries in order to stop the spread of the virus. And we're going to return to that theme a little bit later because it raises an important point about how we should deal with the spread of coronavirus. So let's talk about that. How should we prepare ourselves for not only for the coronavirus right now, but for any future pandemic that may occur? And let's first just assume that Bill Gates is right, that the coronavirus is the pandemic of the century. That may not be a bad thing if you consider that it means that we won't have another terrible pandemic in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And when you think about how technology and medical knowledge has progressed from the Black Death up until now, we're gaining so much more knowledge that can help us fight any sort of pandemic. So, for instance, scientists are already able to sequence the genome of the virus, the coronavirus, in a matter of days. And this would not have been possible even five or ten years ago. So, if you think about what could be possible five or ten years from now, we may be in a way, way better position to deal with future pandemics than we are right now. And one of the areas that we could certainly improve upon is how fast we develop treatments and vaccines for new viruses that arise in nature. The current record for developing a vaccine is one year. That means we identify this virus that needs a vaccine. One year later, we have a vaccine that works. I believe we can seriously beat this record and develop vaccines near instantaneously if we use machine learning algorithms in conjunction with libraries of treatments and compounds that have been proven by the FDA to not be particularly harmful. So essentially we can do all of this iterative testing of various compounds to see if they have an effect on the coronavirus. And if we take this approach, we may be able to develop vaccines and treatments almost at the point of care, meaning when someone is sick, we basically analyze the virus, analyze their particular DNA, and then test a bunch of different possible medical solutions, and then come up with a match. That would be the ideal sort of future scenario. But we, there are other areas that we can be improve, improving upon as well. For instance, regulatory approval of treatments is also going to need to be implemented because right now it takes quite a while to get approval for these vaccines. And that's a good thing because we don't want to give people vaccines that either give you false positives or that have some side effects that we, did, that we don't want. So it's important that we have the right regulatory measures. But if we can accelerate the 
speed at which we can grant approval while still having the same level of certainty that these treatments are effective and are safe, that would be the ideal scenario for the regulatory process. We also need better healthcare infrastructure around the globe. So it's not only about treating people who are sick, but it's also about monitoring disease patterns so that there's an early warning system for whenever new diseases do arise. And interestingly, the first time that the coronavirus was um, detected was actually through an AI algorithm that takes in a lot of information from flight patterns, from hospitals, and saw that there was an uptick in some sort of illness that was going around. So we're already using these types of systems to some degree, but we could definitely build upon them. And part of the issue now is that you know, China has its own system, America has its own system, Europe has its own system, but there's not a whole lot of sharing between various countries and groups. And we live in a global world now. So if we're not sharing the data between countries, then we're really shooting ourselves in the foot because someone is just going to fly across the border. And if we're not sharing data, then there's no way for us to connect the person who was sick with some new cases that arise so that we can uncover patterns for how the disease is spreading and how we can most effectively stop that spreading. Another measure that definitely makes a lot of sense is stockpiling supplies, especially surgical masks, text testing kits, and ventilators in case a crisis does occur. And part of the issue right now is that a lot of panicked people are buying up all the surgical masks they can find. And that makes it tough for medical workers and other people who are on the front line who really need the masks to get them. So if we just have some stockpiles, then we would have them available when there is an emergency. And I guess another point that's really worth mentioning, especially as it relates to America, is that with so many issues in America, the knee-jerk solution is that the private sector should solve it. You know, why do we want to get the government involved? We should just have the private sector solve it. But this is a specific case where we really are better off having the government solve this. And part of the reason is that it's super risky for a private company to invest tons of money to develop a vaccine for a new disease that may not work. And even if that private company is successful in developing a successful vaccine, it will look really bad for the company to profit off of that vaccine because they would need to price the vaccine at a high enough price so they can make back the money they've invested and actually earn a profit on it. And we've seen this time and time again in the American healthcare institution where you have private companies developing medicines and then they try to make a profit but people are end, end up with a really high price tag and a lot of people can't afford it. And we're dealing with an issue right now where it costs almost $4,000 currently to get tested for coronavirus in the US. It's literally cheaper for you to fly to South Korea and get tested for coronavirus and then fly back than it is for you to get tested in the United States. And if you're quarantined, like you test positive and you have to be quarantined, you're going to have to pay for those medical bills and you're not going to get the income that you would get from going to work. So a lot of people 
if you don't have a you know lot of discretionary income, you're probably going to put off getting tested because it doesn't make sense for you economically to get tested, to not be able to go to work. So it would be far better if we had some policies that were for the good of the whole, meaning the government develops vaccines. They essentially allow anyone who needs them, who has the sickness, to use that vaccine for free, ideally. And there should be some support given to people who are under quarantine, some financial support, you know, just like how you're in jury duty. Uh, you know, you should, it's a really a public service that you're doing by allowing yourself to be tested and be quarantined. So especially in the midst of a recession, I think it's pivotal that we give people every incentive they need to get tested, to get treatment, and to get healthy. Because if this continues as it currently stands, then I think America is actually in a pretty tricky situation, just given the costs of medical treatment and healthcare in general. So now let's take a super quick break and then I want to get into the predictions of the worst case, the best case, and the most likely future scenarios. Let's start with the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is that more or less the whole world gets exposed. And when you play out the numbers of, you know, the average infected person infecting two to three other people, it's quite possible that this could spread around the globe and probably wouldn't reach certain rural areas, but would reach almost all areas in the worst case. And let's say that the death rate is accurate so that 2% of people around the world die. This would be huge. This would be unprecedented since the Spanish flu. Let's also say that in the worst case, seasonality doesn't really do much to mitigate the virus. So this has been a point that many people have raised, which is that typically viruses thrive in cold climates because they're able to survive for a longer time on surfaces, whereas they tend to die out in warmer climates because they just you know, basically evaporate from the, you know, the handrail or the doorknob or whatever it is under more hot conditions. So many people have thought that, okay, maybe once it becomes hotter, once it turns into the summer weather, then this virus will go away. That is possible, but it's also worth noting that we live in modern times where a lot of buildings are air conditioned, right? It's not like we're all living outside under, sitting underneath the sleeping underneath the stars every night. So it's unclear whether seasonality will really do much to mitigate the spread of the virus. And another concern is that even if it does go away a little bit during the summer, it will likely come back in the fall and in the winter when it becomes cold again. And it may come back with a vengeance because that's often the time of the year that people have a lot of trouble with sicknesses as the temperatures are changing. Another part of the worst case that some people are concerned about is that the virus becomes endemic, meaning it lays dormant in the population and arises time and time again, just like the seasonal flu. The seasonal flu is endemic to the human population. The same thing could happen with COVID-19. And the final point I'll make about the worst case scenario is that 
we undergo not only a recession, but a global depression as the result of the, sl- the supply chain being disrupted, and, but mostly as a result of mass panic as people sell their assets, they hunker down, they stop spending money. And this really could create a lot more damage even than perhaps the virus itself. And in the worst case, I think it would take a year or more for the economy to recover. Now let's move to the best case scenario. Best case scenario. The best case scenario is that testing kits, quarantine measures, and other policies prevent this virus from spreading to at least some parts of the world. And let's also say in the best case that the death rate ends up being lower than expected. So maybe it's more like what we're seeing in South Korea, where it's about, you know, 0.6% or, you know, less than 1%. Let's also say that seasonality does mitigate the virus and it does not come back in the fall. The virus does not become endemic. And because it's not as bad as it seems it might be right now, we undergo only a mild recession. So it's really more of a correction than a recession. And China has already made some announcements that they do plan to reopen factories in four to six weeks. That seems pretty optimistic right now, but in the best case, let's say that it's true. And in four to six weeks, we pretty much go back to normal supply chains, normal economic conditions. It actually becomes a great opportunity for people to buy low-priced assets like stocks and bonds and this blows over in a few weeks and one trend that definitely helps this best case scenario is that people have really short memories you know when was the last time you thought about Ebola or SARS or MERS before this crisis happened you know people really focus on whatever the new thing is the crisis du jour and then they forget about it and we move on to other things So that could happen. I think it's a bit optimistic to say that that's likely, but it could happen, right? It's still very early. And the part of the best case that I really want to focus on is how this crisis, even if it's really difficult for us to go through right now, will actually make us stronger and better positioned in the long term. So we could seriously improve our data sharing policies as a result of this. We could improve our medical procedures. We could have a more efficient system for developing new treatments and vaccines using technologies like machine learning. We could usher in the new era of decentralized medicine. And this is something I'm really excited about because basically up until recently, you know, up until like World War II, medicine was decentralized. Your doctor would come to your home and would help you in your bed without you having to go to some, you know, the center of the city where the hospital is and you're around all of these other sick people and it may be expensive for you. You have to find a hospital that's in your network for insurance purposes. So rather than having that sort of industrial World War II system that really happened in the 1950s and 60s, we could move back to a more decentralized system of medicine while benefiting from the technology we have now. Meaning you could video chat your doctor, you could talk to your doctor in an app, you could upload your own sample to your computer, 
and get that sample analyzed by a doctor on the other side of the world. You could go to certain facilities if you need to use a machine, but that machine doesn't necessarily need to be where all the other sick people are. So there are ways that we can greatly improve decentralized medicine, and that would make medical access potentially far greater to people in rural areas, which have oftentimes been left behind with the centralized hospital medical system that we have today. Uh, I'm also hopeful that this will push us closer to Medicare for All, even if it's not called Medicare for All, because governments, political parties, and individuals will realize that it just makes a lot more sense for the government to help out with people's medical expenses when there's a global pandemic like the coronavirus. Like, why are we making people pay thousands of dollars to get treatment or even to, just to get tested Whereas it's really in the best interest of all citizens for anyone who's sick and has the right symptoms to get tested. So I think this may help usher in that new era of better medical, uh, better healthcare, especially in America. And on a global scale, I think this could be a situation where there ends up being greater collaboration between countries and greater global unity overall as we sort of unite behind this common foe. Now, we haven't really seen that to the degree that I would hope. Uh, there have been a lot of finger pointing, but it's not too late for us to have that response and for us to really come together as a global community, you know, of various political parties, of various ideologies, and really work together to tackle this. Now, let's bring it home with the most likely scenario. Most likely scenario. My most likely scenario is that all major cities will be exposed. It's not just going to be Washington State and New York in the U.S. It's going to be every major city. It's going to be every major city in almost every country, I believe. You know, maybe not North Korea, which is super sequestered and certain other places, but all major cities are likely to be exposed just given how much people travel between country lines and, and around the globe nowadays. I think seasonality will also have some effect, but it's not going to have a major effect, meaning it will die down somewhat in the summer, but it's not going to go away completely and it will come back. And I believe also, as far as the question of whether or not it will become endemic, it's really hard to say right now. It may resurface itself among some populations, but I'm not sure it will be endemic to all people in all places. As far as the economic impact, I personally am bracing for about three to six months, maybe six to nine months of a recession. And you could think of this one in two ways. One way is, oh my God, this is terrible. You know, how's my portfolio going to behave? Maybe I should just sell my stuff right now. And that's a bad response. The better response is to say, okay, the market is going to be dropping. And as a result, there's a serious opportunity to buy assets at a lower price than you would otherwise be able to buy them. So, you know, personally, I'm planning to buy some stocks perhaps two months from now when the markets start to plateau. It's really hard to say how long this will be. I'm just giving broad estimates, so don't take any of this as financial advice. But I would 
reiterate the fact that this can also be an opportunity. It doesn't have to be just something that's negative. And overall, I would say that one year from now, it is most likely that we will be stronger as a global human collective than we were before. So just to leave you guys, I would say, remember to wash your hands, remember to bring wet wipes to the gym and when you go on airplanes, uh, stay calm with your investments. And if you are interested in perhaps starting your own company or doing something in the business world, I would definitely recommend checking out my new podcast. It's called Noble Growth, the same name as my growth marketing agency. And we release a new episode every Tuesday. So you can go into your favorite podcast app, type in Noble Growth, and check it out. I'd love to hear what you guys think. Thank you guys so much for listening. This has been the future of COVID-19, and I hope to see you next time. The past, the present, and the future.